G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for anything in return. We're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast or any platform that you're listening to this and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Um, if you want to give us a different review, probably give that to a different podcast, please. Um, but anyway, if you could spend a couple of moments of your time to, to leave us a review, that would be great. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, uh, we have Dr. Richard Meeson, one of our senior lecturers here in, in orthopaedic surgery at the RVC, um, and we thought we'd uh, have a have a little chat about uh, hip dysplasia. So thank you very much, Richard, for for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Um, so probably the, the best place to start is uh, is really um, with hip dysplasia. So uh, we, you know, how do these sort of dogs present, and and when do we when do we see them? So um, it's often large breed dogs, uh, like and commonly in Labradors or Rottweilers, German Shepherds, and uh, typically they're presenting somewhere between five and twelve months months of age. And people often describe uh, a lameness where, by the dogs, may look like they're bunny hopping, so they may bounce on both back legs. Uh, they may have a persistent uh, limp, and often they're quite uncomfortable jumping in and out of the cars and sitting down and, and things like that. So normally at that stage, uh, owners will take their pets to the vet and then they'll start to be sort of doing some investigations. Can animals bunny hop for other reasons? Uh, not that commonly. It tends to, bunny hopping is, is a fairly pathognomonic, uh, typical thing that we see with, with hip dysplasia. Um, it, generally, it would be anything that would be sort of making them not want to, to use their hips in a normal way. And the other thing that also goes with that is often they'll have a lateral sway. So they'll sort of walk almost like they're going down a catwalk, sort of slinking from side to side because they're actually trying not to uh, move their hips. They're actually trying to move their whole back to, to avoid moving their hips. Okay, so when you see these guys when they're presented to you, so what, what do you do with them initially? What do you so normally we would um, give them uh, an examination all over, but in terms of the legs, we would be feeling for any muscle atrophy, and then we'd also be very interested to know, have they got any discomfort in the hips? So normally we would feel their hips and run them through a range of motion, so we move them backwards, forwards, sideways, and most of the time it's when you move the hip fully extended, so that's towards the back, um, that they will may, may show some discomfort. And that's helpful for us to know that um, if they're in pain, then we need to do something to try and help them. Okay. And are there other like tests that we can do to, to see if they're... So if you wanted to take that any further, the next step um, is normally an examination under sedation or, or anaesthesia. And um, there are some manipulation tests you can do on the hip. So the most common one is called the Ortolani test, and they actually do this in babies as well because babies have an equivalent disease called developmental dysplasia of the hip. And what happens is you, you have uh, the dog on its back and you push down on, it, on its legs uh, and that pushes the hip. If, if you've got hip dysplasia, then there's sort of looseness in the hip. So the hip then pops out of joint and then you move the leg sideways and then back again and you'll feel a clunk as the hip pops back into the socket. So the hip is like a ball and socket joint. So the ball kind of comes out of the socket and then goes back in again. And you can actually make measurements of the angles um, that you get, and that can be informative for certain types of surgeries that you may perform early on. We then follow that with some x-rays. Uh, normally we would do um, extended leg x-rays in the UK, 
Uh, and and what we're really interested in seeing is, is are there any signs of osteoarthritis and and the ball and socket how well does the ball sit in the socket and we're actually sort of we call that um, femoroacetabular coverage so we're looking at whether or not it's really cut the the ball is covered by the socket fully or not um, and sort of less than 50 percent coverage we would consider to be indicative of, of hip dysplasia I imagine this greatly depends on your radiographs and positioning. Yeah, very important. So when we do that, you need to get the legs really straight. And actually, uh, a mistake that, that's easy to make is you actually don't include the knees because the stifle joints um, allow you to see if the kneecap's in the middle. And if the kneecap's in the middle, you know your x-rays are, your positioning is straight. And that's really important. And often uh, these, has to be, these x-rays have to be taken under sedation or anaesthesia to get them really well positioned and they've got to be very straight as well because you're trying to make an assessment of how well the hips fit in together so if the if the dog is positioned off straight it may artificially look less or more and uh, and are there any sort of devices that people use is that is that where the, the pen hip method comes yeah, in to try so and keep them in the right position that's right so the the pen hip um is a um from the united states of america uh, pennsylvania university and they developed this system whereby they actually apply um, pressure to the legs so it actually pushes the hips out and then that gives them what's called a distraction index they can look how much it was in and then how much the hip moves out and they can actually give you a number for that and that number has shown to be predictive of the dogs getting arthritis later in life so the more lax the more the hip pops out the more that they get osteoarthritis we don't tend to do that in the uk there's a european equivalent called a distraction index which is similar but you put the dog on their front and their knee sitting in like a trough which actually forces their their hips out but in the uk um, and the uk has a screening program um, which is a combination of the bva and the kennel club um, we tend to just do, do straight extended hip, hip x-rays and then they are graded and scored up to 53 for each hip side and you get a total of 106. The lower the score, the better. So if you've got a score of zero, you've got the most amazing, beautiful hips ever. And if you've got a score um, of, um, uh, whatever, what did I say? 106. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, so the score of 106, then then they're the worst hips you've ever seen, basically. Imagine the uh, consensus agreement to get all the orthopaedic surgeons to agree on those 106 points would have been a, a yeah, fun so, afternoon. So when this was set up, they had a, uh, a consensus group of uh, key opinion leaders at the time, because this goes back quite a number of years um, and they determine the criteria by which then people then uh, assess the hips and then it's only certain people actually do the assessments. Any um, vet practice may be part of the scheme in, in, the, in as much as they'll take the x-rays of the dogs. They have to be over a year old when, when you actually do the x-rays um, um, but then they get sent off to a panel who do all the marking. So there's, there's a degree of uh, uniformity in the assessments and then they can sometimes be used um, for uh, breeding you know to indicate whether or not there's a high likelihood that the offspring will have a high or low chance of hip dysplasia and, and going down that route Richard have we got information to suggest that actually that uh, information that we can gather from the radiographs is predictive of a them going on to develop hip dysplasia and also their offspring so so yeah so so the x-rays um, that you take, if, if the hip is showing laxity, 
the more laxity, then the more uh, likely you are to get osteoarthritis, which comes back to the distraction index conversation that we had. The UK system is really more about scoring osteoarthritic change that's developed, which you will usually see by a year of age. Um, and then they score that severity um, as part of their, their scheme. And over the years, there's actually been a reduction in the prevalence of hip dysplasia. But we think there may be a degree of... Now, that's either, that's either because these schemes are helping... But there is a little bit of a problem that, that people may not put forward dogs for the scheme if they've got a suspicion that they may have hip dysplasia. So there's a bit of a bias potentially built into the system. So only the good dogs get their hips scored. So, so then that has an impact. And then, you know, that, what you're talking about is really phenotypic change. So what, what, what actually happens with the dog? But actually the genetics which underlie or part underlie this disease are far more complicated. So you could still potentially carry some of the genes, because it's a polygenetic genetic problem, for hip dysplasia, but you may not have overt hip dysplasia in that individual, but doesn't mean that their offspring may not still get hip dysplasia. So not uncommonly, I have people come into the clinic and they say, but the scores were really good, uh, and unfortunately that that doesn't guarantee that, that the puppies won't develop hip dysplasia. It just makes it less likely. Absolutely, absolutely. So you, so once you've um, taken whatever radiographic views and, and assessed the patient, like what what can we, what can we actually do, or what can be what can be done for uh, um, for our dogs that have hip dysplasia? So it, so it does depend on on how old they are. So um, if we start with sort of the younger dogs, uh, and there's also a little bit of controversy in this. So. Um, Many of the younger dogs with hip dysplasia, so at this stage they've probably got a, a lax hip, so a hip that's quite unstable. Um, actually, about 70% of them, as they get to about a year and a half, will um, actually significantly improve. They may not be completely normal, but, but that large group will find that what happens is their hip joint thickens. Uh, they build up the musculature around the hip and, it, and that supports that structure. So, so there's a large group of dogs, if managed correctly, um, probably don't need surgery. Um, and the sort of things that you might do would, would include hydrotherapy, regular lead walks, omega-3 fatty acids have got very good evidence for um, having an anti-inflammatory role uh, in, in many um, arthritic diseases or these types of diseases, and normally we would give a fairly long course of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to really settle everything down um, and then do a lot of supportive regular activity so conservative management doesn't mean just sitting in a, a small small room and not doing any walks it's actually important they are walked and most joints with a pathology are better off being used but for shorter periods more regularly rather than one long walk so there's a big group of dogs that will do quite well however there are a couple of surgical options that you could do at quite an early stage so <clears throat> animals that are under about four to five months of age some people would ad advocate doing a surgery called juvenile symphysiodesis and what that is is um, in the growing pelvis there are growth plates which are cartilage areas where the new bone form forms so the pelvis can get bigger as they grow so if you actually damage that area particularly the one on the on the pubis you can actually affect how the pelvis grows so you can make the pelvis grow in a way that that the the cups uh, the acetabulum or the cups actually start to roll over more so they actually cover the hip better 
The problem with it is, is you've got to do it very early on for it to be effective. And often these dogs don't come into the clinic till six, seven, eight, nine months. And actually you've missed the window if you haven't really done it by five to six months, really. Uh, and the younger, the better. Uh, and the other problem with that is that some of the dogs that you might treat, although there has been shown that on mass these dogs do very well, some of those dogs that you treat would have done well anyway. However, it's a relatively low risk procedure, but it's not that exact. The surgical alternative to that is to do a triple pelvic osteotomy. So in this instance, we take a young dog, so normally under six, seven months, um, and we cut the pelvis in three places so we can actually surgically make the hip joint fit better together. So, so we actually rotate part of the pelvis so that the, there's better coverage of the head of the femur. Um, and again, that, that's a surgery that you know has good outcomes, but many of those dogs would have um, done well anyway. So it's difficult to know, you know, that's that thing of numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm. And actually, certainly historically, there used to be a lot of complications associated with this procedure, um, like damaging the sciatic nerve. The bone is almost like cheese sort of consistency at that age. It's very, very soft. And you're trying to distort the pelvis and put a metal plate and screws in. And years ago, there used to be a lot of problems with the, the, the screws failing or that they were pulling out of the bone. It's not so bad now we have locking implants. But nonetheless, there are still, there's still quite a lot of potential complications associated with this procedure. But the people that do it really, really advocate it. At the RVC, um, currently we don't do either of those procedures. We actually will advise to do conservative management until the dogs have got to the age whereby they should have improved. If they haven't improved, we would then offer a definitive surgery at that stage. Uh, or if they improve and then they go downhill at a much later stage, so when they're much older with osteoarthritis, then again we would offer a definitive surgery. So what are the definitive surgeries? So the definitive surgeries um, in the older dog or the um, sort of uh, older immature dog, so any dog sort of 10, 12 months onwards, we would look to either do, and they had a painful hip that wasn't responsive to uh, conservative therapy, we'd offer them either, either a femoral head and neck excision so that's the surgery whereby we basically just cut the ball of the ball and socket off. And then we send the dogs for lots and lots of really intensive hydrotherapy and physiotherapy. And it's quite clever because what actually happens is, is that that area forms a, a false joint, what we call a pseudoarthrosis. And it can even have fluid in it, a bit like a synovial joint. Uh, and dogs will have a pain, if it's done well and you get the post-operative care done right, they'll have a pain-free hip that they are happy to use, but it's not quite as good as a, as a normal hip and it's not as good as a total hip replacement, which is the other option. So the other option is a total hip replacement, much like um, someone's granny may have, whereby we actually remove the ball of the uh, femoral head and we put in a normally a metal uh, stem with a metal ball on it and we uh, clean out the cup um, and put in a plastic cup. It kept maybe metal uh, backed or something like that, but most of the dog hip replacements are a plastic cup ultra high molecular weight polyethylene usually and a, a metal ball joint so it's a total replacement of all the diseased tissue with a totally new lovely hip and uh, they can have extremely good outcomes 
um, particularly in larger dogs and athletic dogs and dogs intending to have, to return to work um, it's, a, it's a very good option but it is a big piece of surgery and it does potentially um, carry potential risks and complications so that's some um, a discussion that we'd have with the clients and it will vary a bit depending on I mean we can do a hip replacement down to you know a, a several kilogram cat um, all the way up to a 70 kilogram you know great dame but but the point is that that each depending where you are on that stage of your disease where the owners are in terms of finances and commitment and time uh, and any other sort of pre-existing conditions that the animal may have uh, and, and really you know how old they are and what kind of activity you want out of them at the end will all feed into the sort of the discussion that happens about what's the best option for that individual client and patient. See, I, maybe if I'm remembering incorrectly or correctly, I don't know, but is there a certain weight limit that femoral head and necks tend to work better or is that a, a bit of a so, misnomer? Yeah, <clears throat> so people would say um, you wouldn't really want to be doing a femoral head and neck excision in anything over 20 to 30 kilograms. But, you know, if you've got a 50 kilogram dog that isn't suitable for hip replacement and is in a lot of pain, um, as long as you can get them doing the physio. And, and the thing that has changed a bit, I think, from when that sort of anecdote came out is the fact that there's far greater access to hydrotherapy uh, water walkers you know the underwater treadmills those sorts of things which are really powerful ways to help rehabilitate a larger dog um, and and the rehabilitation really is more than 50 percent of the, the good outcome you know the surgery is important but as much as we like to think surgery is really important it is important but it's not everything and actually the outcome from those procedures really depend on doing a good job um, post-operatively as well um, and we would normally say that much smaller animals um, would do absolutely fine or as well as a hip replacement with a femoral head neck excision probably the truth isn't quite there I think they can do very well um, but I suspect that well there, there's a theory that actually our ability to see the, the change in their their lameness how they're walking is much easier when they're bigger than when they're smaller because their stride length is shorter so they walk with a higher frequency so they're moving a leg more rapidly so it's much harder to actually really suss out whether or not there is a subtle lameness or not and and actually um, visually looking for uh, for lameness and quantifying that's actually very poor anyway but that's that's for another time probably but but nonetheless um so so all bets are off in some respects but you know if you have a smaller dog uh, and you can do good rehabilitation then it's a good option but if you've got a bigger dog and a hip replacement is an option then there's no reason not to do it it's just you've got to do the physio and the hydro afterwards and maybe this is a bit backwards uh, in uh, our uh, our story arc of this but do we understand the disease process about what what's actually go, going on so th these dogs are born with normal hips uh, as as is the case in children with this disease and what happens is early on, and it can be as early as a month, um, and we may see radiographic signs from two months of age, there is a, the joint capsule becomes loose, so there's laxity in the joint capsule. And what that means is as the dog walks, the, the ball is like smacking around in the socket rather than sitting in nice and tightly. That causes microfractures uh, and induces arthritis and causes inflammation. And it also starts to affect how the hip joint grows because um, joints, the way they form their shape is partly about how they fit together. So if the joint stops fitting together properly, they start to misshapen. So you get um, sort of dishing and flattening of the cup and you get a broadening and mushrooming of the, the femoral head. 
The actual cause of it, we're not really that sure. There's been theories about um, vitamin C, changes in the types of collagen in the hip joint. There was, you know, theories about animals that grow more quickly, maybe more prone to it, whether there's too much muscle tension. Dogs that are under-muscled may be more at risk for it. Uh, it's difficult to know. We know for sure that, you know, you take a greyhound, they basically don't get it. You take a Labrador, they've got a very high chance of getting it. So there is some genetic aspect, but whether it's genetics that affects how they're growing or, or, or how their legs, uh, the shape of the legs or the collagen component or, or whatever, we're not really that sure. Um, but whatever we do, and including those surgeries early on, there's this, there's, there is a fairly relentless progression to some degree of osteoarthritis. Once a joint has been insulted in some way or other, that tends to follow. And you said before there's a, a similar <coughs> sorry, excuse me, disease that exists in, in, in kids yep. as well. Do we, do we extrapolate any information from that, either how they're managed in, in people and what we can learn from that, or is it just too different well th there are a lot of similarities so developmental dysplasia of the hip in children and hip dysplasia in a dog both are both start with a normal hip both get this very early on um developmental dysplasia of the hip um they will assess for in hospital when a, a child is first born and they reassess them at a later stage normally at the gp and if they've got any suspicions, then they'll do an ultrasound evaluation of the hip, which is something that we don't do. We do a radiographic evaluation, potentially, if, if there are clinical signs. So their screening program is um, across the board, whereas ours is selective. Um, and it is a big cause of osteoarthritis and early hip replacements in people. Uh, so people having hip replacement in their 30s or 40s may well have had this or, or something called femoroacetabular impingement where basically their hip joint just doesn't, isn't a nice fit. Um, so, so, so they both progress to osteoarthritis. There are some common, um, when they've done genetic studies, there are some common areas that, that seem similar. So there may be some similarity in the genetics as well. Um, but there hasn't been a key unifying gene between the two processes that everyone goes ah oh, that's why they both get them but it's a polygenetic disease so it's probably not going to be like that um in people what they tend to do is they would if they if if babies have it they may then um actually put them in certain kinds of um not swaddling but they actually force the hips back into the right place and strap them there so it actually drives the correct growth and pressure in in the hip joint whereas we don't do that in dogs like a distracted yeah animal. exactly um so they actually force the femoral head back into the into the acetabular cup and we don't do anything like that in dogs we just let the disease progress and then we intervene as and when so it's got in some interesting similarities but inherently there are some differences you said about certain um, nutraceuticals or omega fatty acids yeah. that are important. Is, it, is any other part of nutrition important? So um, large breed dogs, we think there is a potential role in them growing too fast. So a lot of them will have large breed diets, which are designed to actually give them slightly slower uh, growth rates, growth profiles. And they also have factored in certain calcium to phosphate ratios in the food. Um uh, in terms of um, supplements, the only thing that really has good evidence for being helpful, and uh, certainly for osteoarthritis, is omega-3. There's mixed evidence for other nutraceuticals, such as um, chondroitin sulfate and things like that. And there's been big meta-analyses in people which show they don't really have any significant impact, but they don't really do any harm. 
So the jury's out. There's a mixture. The, some studies show benefit in dogs and some don't. So, so it's unclear, really. But the one thing you probably don't go wrong with is, is an omega-3, increasing the omega-3 component of the diet because it, it drives down the arachidonic acid cascade, which is where you get all your inflammatory mediators from, and it drives it down into a, a route that's more anti-inflammatory than pro-inflammatory. It's meant to be the Mediterranean diet. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We, we should all be eating more fish, pasta and olive oil and drinking red wine, maybe. Absolutely. And, and how about uh, quantities that, that we eat? Has that uh, been, been shown to be...? There is a... So omega-3, there is actually a, a dose banded around, which I can't remember at the top of my head what it is, but... More of nutrition, sorry, Richard. More oh, like of... oh um, so the other aspect about that is that... Um, your weight or the, the weight can be an important component so there was a study uh, at Penn where they um, took dogs and they fed them ad lib so they could eat whatever they wanted this is a colony of Labradors and they had a sister colony of Labradors which were fed 25% less than the ad lib dogs and the dogs that were fed ad lib got arthritis by six years of age where the dogs that were calorie restricted got arthritis associated with hip dysplasia at 12 years of age so there's an impact either mechanical uh, of carrying extra weight or there are theories about hormones released by having additional body fat such as leptins um, and certainly uh, in people uh, obese people often have higher instances of um, hand osteoarthritis and that's obviously got nothing to do with their actual body weight because you don't walk on your hands um, but but we think it's to do with the hormonal changes that are associated with having this big metabolic block of fat in your body that's actually driving uh, signaling that, that may be driving osteoarthritis they also get more hip and knee osteoarthritis which mm. probably is to do with the extra weight so, so, so again, it's a multifactorial, Abs- yeah, absolutely, like, like, like issue. So, th- there's a there's a trend in the in the UK that we're seeing, um, or the mo- more popular breeds actually, frighteningly, like Brachys, Phalanx, or, or French yep. Bulldogs. Has is that any bearing on uh, osteoarthritis in general? Or do we or do we just appreciate larger dogs are? Uh, more prone to getting this condition or certain breeds or um so hip dysplasia isn't exclusively in large breeds but it's mainly in large breeds i mean even cats can get hip dysplasia sometimes um in terms of the shift in patterns of what dogs people have so um you know we see hip dysplasia in labradoodles and they get osteoarthritis um in terms of the brachies their osteoarthritis is more commonly driven by other orthopedic problems so so what we these are all sort of what we call secondary osteoarthropathies or secondary degenerative joint disease so basically there's something that's gone awry with the joints such they may have an elbow that doesn't fit together very well so they've got elbow dysplasia or they may have a a slipping kneecap or they may have problems with their cruciate ligament and those things are then an inciting cause for secondary osteoarthritis which then develops uh, with that disease and beyond that disease um so we see osteoarthritis in those in brachycephalic breeds but more associated with other problems that are indicative of their shape and form and with hip dysplasia in, in general where do, where do you think um the the future is is going do you think there'll be more genetic information <clears throat> about it or will be I, I mean it's a difficult one to um it's a difficult one to isolate. If it, the things that you can really sort out genetically are the things like cystic fibrosis, where there's one gene or, or one set of genes that, that are the problem, or 
or different errors in that one gene, say. Polygenetic diseases are much more difficult, but the, but the holy grail in terms of breeding would be a blood test to identify um, risk genes or, or, or even the combinations, and then you breed from two dogs which you know the combination will be okay. Um, and that and that's fine as long as you then sequentially keep testing testing this. The trouble with when you start selectively breeding, which is what where we got how we got to this problem and what we're really talking about again, is you often start inducing some other problem somewhere else down the line because you select for one thing, you cause another. So we have to be quite careful about it. But but genetic testing would be the ideal way to try and reduce this disease and would but it it would be better again if it was sort of across the board rather than people selectively doing it um but you know the genetics will underlie what what the dog ends up as the genetics will underlie the phenotype looking at phenotype will get rid of some of the genetics but not all of it so do we reckon we're just trying to manage what we have at the moment rather than trying to at the moment we have no good way to totally get rid of it um short of breeding everything with a greyhound which i don't think is the way we're going to go there's no real way to to do that at the moment because the 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 kennel club uh, bva scheme is good um but it's not mandatory so there's a lot of animals that get that won't won't be part of it and it also you know there will be dogs that will carry the genes that won't have sufficient change at that point to get a high enough score to be ruled out so you know it's a filter but it's not an absolute I suppose it's really important in sort of working dogs as as well as you know, or dogs that are involved in um, the military or police yep. or fire or, or yeah, you know or de- home help or yeah yeah home, absolutely you're hearing seeing dogs yep. that uh, um, because a lot of training goes into them and so then they do do a lot a of those groups do look very carefully at those dogs and um, they do try and screen for those diseases. Um, but you know we've we've done hit replacements in dogs that are then go back into into work um, to help people and things like that because also there's a degree of there's a vast investment in these dogs to to train them so if you can get a fairly good a solution to their problem and get them back working that's often worth that extra cost um, so so it's, it's difficult ideally they want to avoid those problems entirely in the first place but that's not always the case. Absolutely. So what what is what has changed in your uh, um, in your career with their with their management of hip dysplasia in, in general? Or do you think we're um, further along this journey? Um, I d- so I, I guess in the last ten twelve years, nothing vastly significant has changed. What what has changed a bit is there's now many more different types of hip replacement systems than there used to be. There used to basically be one system uh, from one particular manufacturer, which is actually we now do the updated version of that system um and since then and this is a change across the entire veterinary orthopedic market there's been an explosion in implants from different companies um some of them are very good um but there's a question about you know validation of them testing of them and those sorts of things and and some of the systems are quite different from what's been done in people. So there isn't a sort of a background of research and understanding where you go, well, this is what typically happens in this hip replacement system. You know, it's something totally new. Um, doesn't mean it's wrong. It may be better. But I'm saying that that now, you know, um, if someone goes and has a hip replacement uh, in, done in their dog, uh, they may end up with one of about four or five different hip systems. 
Because I think, and it used to only really be about one or two. Because I think in people they almost like number them so you know what hip you've had. Yeah, and... so so they have registries in in human hips, and actually there is a John Innes set up uh, a hip registry based out of Liverpool uh, Vet School, and that's co-funded by the British Veterinary Orthopaedic Association, so they support that, uh, and that's a, a scheme that is voluntary. Um, so when um, different people do uh, vets do hip replacements, they actually put in the information as to what type of replacement they're doing. Uh, they record what complications they have or don't have or whatever, and they also um, they also follow. They then get in contact with the clients if they give permission for that, and they do. They use a clinical metric, so that's like a validated questionnaire to see how the dogs are responding um, to having had the hip replacement or any anything that goes on thereafter. So, so there are efforts to do that sort of thing in veterinary, but there's no. Um, there's no regulatory system that um, basically says we have to do it, so it is it is totally voluntary, um, and that, that's part of the problem with trying to get that kind of data. Which is a pity because you probably like if it was compulsory, we'd actually have a lot yeah. more more robust information yeah. about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But but gathering that information with and there's only small groups of people that are really doing hip replacements really when it when it boils down to it, there aren't that many surgeons really. Uh, or centres, and so the, the numbers are small anyway. And uh, when we went back to, we said about the people taking radiographs and the distracted views and, and not, and then people using ultrasound. Has, has advanced imaging changed the way we look at hips or, or not? We're not still moving? pretty much practising uh, technology that is available universally, uh, so radiographs. Um, there have been studies where people have tried ultrasound on puppies to look at their hips, and um, there's been there's been several CT analyses of um, dogs with hip dysplasia, English bulldogs, and looking at the conformation of their hip and their their hip joint. Um, but that hasn't really rolled out into anything that we use clinically at the moment. Is that just because there's there's you know, no point changing something if it's not broken? Well, I, I think it depends what you want to do with the information. If you can find something predictive at an early stage, that might be helpful. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, well, probably one of the most important messages about all of this is um, you have to treat the patient that's in front of you. So, um, you know, looking at a, uh, an X-ray or radiograph and saying, well, your hips are terrible, um, that's, that's all good and well, and they probably are quite abnormal but if the dog isn't painful and if they're exercising well and and how enjoying their life then you don't want to treat an x-ray you want to treat the patient so see so that really is very important so so we've got to be a bit careful about we can do all these extra tests and things but is it going to be of any benefit to the patient because actually the, probably the most important thing is actually when i see them and i watch them walk and i feel how comfortable they are on on their hip joints and maybe that's a, a great place to uh, to wrap it up there, unless you think we've uh, missed anything. No, I in think that seems very comprehensive. So thank you very much for your time today, Richard. Thanks, Tom. And uh, thank you for, for listening. So uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic root race device and you won't have to even worry about missing a, a podcast. If you leave us a review, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any friends, we're, we're, uh, we don't care. Um, so we'll play some show notes to the obviously pages. So just type in obviously clinical podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.